Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhart. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. You can also find us at our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. And please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. We have an update for our contest that we have going on for the New York City trip the first weekend of February. And that is that we've said before, two people will win a stipend. That's what we want to be clear about. We don't want to exclude anybody from this. Originally, we had said only domestic United States contingent, but now we're saying we'll give you a stipend. And then if your flights are more, your hotel is more or whatever it is, you make up the rest of it. But that stipend will be $1,500 per winner. And there's two Yay. winners. So Louise, you want to give the details about what I'm yeah. talking about? <laughs> I realized so, I was being vague. No, it's exciting. So if you've been listening, we're going to New York, February 2nd and 3rd. We're going to have a happy hour sponsored by us. And this is you know, and hosted and, by us and sponsored by exactly, S12F. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. My wording was wrong. Sponsored by S12F. And we're going to be collaborating there to get everybody to come see Reckoning with the Primal Wound on the third and Unmothering with Liz DeBetta. It's a play that she puts on and also a writing workshop she's going to do. So it's a whole weekend in New York City. We're going to be there. Autumn will be there. Liz will be there. Our sponsor will be there. Yes. Greg will be there. Mm-hmm. So lots of people to meet and say mm -hmm. hi to. And on Friday night at the happy hour, we'll, we'll really be available to hang out and talk. And we're excited about that and meeting, meeting so people excited. we haven't met in person yet. So I can't believe it. So let's tell them where to go. You go to our website. Our website. Just, yeah. Yep. Just subscribe. Just put in your email and subscribe. We're going to pull out the winners on December 19th from a hat. Like literally, yes. that's how we're going to do it. <laughs> yes. So our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com, right on the homepage. Sign up for our mailing list. You'll see it there. And we'll Can't see wait. you in New York. Can't believe it. I'll see you in New York. Sarah. I know. That's what's really exciting. I love it. Okay. okay. Bye. If you missed our first ever fog lift in Nashville, don't worry because New York City is shaping up to be even more incredible. You'll get to party with us on Friday night. Then watch the film Reckoning with the Primal Wound and my award-winning one-woman show Unmothered on Saturday in the iconic Berklee College of Music's Power Station Theater. Aren't you offering an intimate writing session on Sunday too, Liz? Yeah, I'm offering a small workshop for anyone interested on Sunday. Tickets are now available, but space is limited, so please tell anyone you know who wants to listen to adoptees about their experience of adoption through the arts to come to Operation Foglift, New York City edition. So, Sarah, we want to thank our Patreons. They're coming in like crazy, the $10 group. I know. I, In case you don't know what we're talking about, we put a level on our Patreon that if you sign up for the $10 level, we're going to be doing a monthly Zoom, like a 30-minute say hi, kind of coffee with everybody. Totally informal. Yeah. Maybe going forward, it'll be topical. But this first one is December 2nd. Yeah. Time um, to be announced. It'll probably be morning to afternoon because we have so many time zones. Right. We have UK people. <laughs> we have Australia, New it'll be, Zealand. It'll be coffee be for me and a challenge in UK. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we're excited and we're going to have a whole community. I was thinking about this. Every month, we'll have the same group and it will grow. And yeah. it'll be adoptees that can meet other adoptees and they could go off and have their own relationships. Really, anybody who's our Patreon can, who is a patron at the $10 level can join. So yeah, no parameters there. Just if you are a Patreon and you want to come say hi and have coffee slash wine slash yeah. tea with us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you're in then, Hawaii, we have in Hawaii, yeah. you have to get up really early and do something yeah. else. <laughs> Yep. Okay. okay, so that's just go to patreon.com, Adoption, The Making of Me, and there you have it. All righty, thanks. I just want to take a moment here to say thank you to our sponsor, S12F, for his continuous support. We are ever grateful for him. In today's episode, we will be discussing a chapter of The Baby Thief by Barbara Bizantz Raymond, Georgia's Children, and then we'll be bringing on fellow adoptee Monica Hall. Stay tuned. 
Hi, Louise. Hi, Sarah. (laughs) Well, I can't say that I'm regretful that we are after this chapter that we only have three left. This is honestly one of the harshest, most Mm -hmm. depressing books I've read in my entire life. Me too. Forget it being about adoption or anything else. Just period. Awful. I think it's the worst. I I was telling my husband last night that I put her, I was trying to explain to him who she is. And I said, here's Hitler. And I consider her right next to him. In case you skipped ahead, we are reading The Baby Thief, Barbara Bassance Raymond. We are on chapter 11, George's Children, which is what it sounds like. It talks about all the children she stole and you know what I was thinking? Because when they did that one point in the chapter, they discussed her mental health. And I was like, oh, you know, I, bet, yes. I bet she was undiagnosed bipolar. For sure. Is what it sounds like. Because she had those high moods and those low moods. She could moods, be kind and, she, and really engaging. And disappear fart. for a while, like on a manic, yeah. just up and go to Cuba. And just, I know this disease sometimes can, you know, like she would buy, go on spending sprees and you know like and then she would just crash so this of course does not Mm -hmm. excuse there's no correlation here between bipolar and stealing children i just want to be clear about that i'm not making that causation but i'm just saying i think that was another piece to her oh i'm sure her mental illness was so unchecked everyone's scared of her no one's checking in right the thing i want to jump into is she's trying to highlight the children in this chapter it's really long First of all, Mm -hmm. very hard to read because a lot of abusive things go on in this chapter. And so Sarah and I were just discussing before we got on that this is, I mean, there was parts where I literally couldn't read it. Yeah. So she's trying to really honor these children. And I just want to say to people, you need to go on, even just look into this book because she puts the real ads that were placed for these babies. Mm -hmm. And here's one, like, I'm going to show it on screen if someone watches YouTube, but like, Paul isn't a bit embarrassed about wanting to be adopted. They like to be your Christmas gift. And look at the kids. They just look so depressed in this. Like I know. Then there's another one that says, yours for the asking. George wants to play catch, but he needs a daddy to complete team. God, it's awful. A, I mean, and then they called another girl a solemn little trick with oh, big brown eyes. Madge is anxious for a new home and a mother and daddy. She was five years old. She was one who'd been stolen. She'd at, been stolen. At older age. She had a mother and daddy and was taken out of her yard or something. So it's mm-hmm. like, I'm sorry. She's looking with her solemn big brown eyes because she's in trauma. The yeah. whole thing is so, I have a lot of circle like WTF things going on. Here. I mean, there were so many stories, mm-hmm. but the recurring story throughout this book has been Billy Hale and yes. his mother, Molly. And that was just, I just felt reading Molly's story. Yeah. A single mom. I mean, she did everything mm-hmm. to, you know, she had a, whatever job. And this was during the Depression. So, yeah. so many people were without work and trying to get work. And Molly was always working and she would go be like a domestic yes. help with people. And they'd put her up in, you know, maids quarters or whatever. And then finally one guy was like, well, I don't want children here. So she took Billy yeah. to Georgia thinking that was just a place he was going to stay, you know, just for like a week. And then she'd come back on the weekend, you know, and get him. And then he was gone. And she spent her entire life looking for him and died without ever finding him. I I can't. Um, It's so sad, Sarah. And she talked about him on her deathbed. Yeah. Because he met her, finally, Billy, you know, met met her brother. And I mean, Billy. Yeah, just and this is just one of many, many, many stories. I mean, there's so many, it's just awful. There was a whole thing that had to do with the, uh, when she would manipulate like the families and the, and also the doctors withholding the medical information. Mm-hmm. Like, so she would actually tell the doctors, like she knew things about the kids that she, when the pediatricians would come, she would tell the doctors, no, I don't know that. Or like holding back things she knew, then tell the parents there's nothing wrong. It's like this whole manipulative thing. So some adoptive parents, not all were horribly abusive. Okay. Some were okay. They didn't know what they're getting into either. Everyone's getting false information. So it's like, she's just such well, a right. There was one mother that gave birth to f- four children while she had syphilis and yes. that information was never passed on to the adoptive parents. This and- is something you'd like to know. I mean, that you need to know for your child too. It's just bizarre. And then finally, you know, we could go on and on about, you know, she highlights so many of the 
stories of the children's stories. But finally, you know, it started to catch up with her. She, of Mm -hmm. course, was never accountable. But so after her death, when it was finally, they finally did, there was all these court battles going on and they finally think what some some actor right had adopted who's like they could take that baby they'll be meeting up with a cannon if they get here like, <laughs> I like your acting skills. right tough guy right right <laughs> okay tough guy but they they did rule in the favor of the adoptive parents at the end of the day where those they made those adoptions legitimate so yeah. georgia still won six feet under and she still won she still won and that was the point of at the end of this chapter was she still got away with it all. She yeah. other people had to start being more accountable, but not her. She never never her. Never had That's, it's me. just it so shines a light on how dominating and domineering and scary she must have been that still, like no matter what. Yeah. Also, I thought it was interesting that again that goes circles mm-hmm. back to what I was saying about her spending. She had so much money and then it was just oh. all gone by yeah. the down to forty five thousand dollars from yeah. millions. Yeah. And then even that went places at the end. I was surprised by that too. I'm like, wow, this I think woman she was... had to by the time the lawsuit against her was settled nine years later, her estate had dwindled to forty thousand dollars and the state attached two thirds of that. She left no money for children's causes or for the institution that had consumed her, but she had left adoption a terrible legacy. She did. This is honestly one how people say, oh, one person, this, that, it doesn't really matter. You don't get out and vote. You know, I mean, just let's take it to modern times. One person can literally change the world mm-hmm. in good, good and bad ways. This is a person who single-handedly shaped how adoption would be for the rest of time and that mm-hmm. we're unraveling now. Still I mean, unraveling. Still unraveling. And still, you know, that's what's still having problems getting their birth records yes. and... And it's just super interesting to me, like the narrative that took hold from one person's campaign in Memphis. It's not like she was the president of the United States or something, you know, or the, this is like back before social media. It's really that she was that powerful. And that's why the story is important to highlight. That's why we read the book, but we won't miss this book. We will not miss this book. Next week, we are on to part three, chapter 12, Georgia's Lies. Can't wait to hear those because. Yeah. I'm just trying to see, could we, could we actually, yeah, you know, we in theory could do two chapters in one and then have our final episode be the last chapter if we want. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. It's not as long as this chapter. And we are going to do a memoir next season. Again, we've had a lot of people say, let's go back to memoir. So we'll let you know what that is. Yeah. We will announce that what next week, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that gives you that'll give you a couple of weeks to get the book and join yeah. along. Promise it won't be as <laughs> awful as this book. <laughs> right. By awful I mean mm-hmm. hard to read. Hard to read. Well, that's what I told you our friends said to us. Thank you for reading it for me because I want to know the information, but I can't handle the stories. It really is painful. It really is. Yeah. So, well, we have Monica next. So, yep. see you yep. soon. See you in a minute. Hey, Louise, I've been meaning to ask you about Magic Mind, the little shots that we... Oh, my gosh, the natural state. Oh, my gosh. Flow shots. Okay, Sarah and I have been getting these natural state flow shots called Magic Mind out of California. All natural. You take them in the morning with, you know, along with your coffee, they're best around caffeine. And they put you in a flow state. Like, I've been sick and... In the morning, I'm super productive and I know it's helping me. I'm like, I can't believe it. In fact, I have to keep him away from Bill, by the way. <laughs> I know. That, I guess that's the, I have an advantage of being single here because <laughs> no one's stealing my magic mind. I was like, wait, why do I only have this many left? Hey, magic <laughs> mind, send me some more. Exactly. And by the way, cutest packaging. The packaging is really, it's so hip and. Yeah. Modern and just, it's really great and so transparent with everything that's in it. I I really love it. I really love it too. And it's all natural and it helps you. And it's just, it tastes good. I'm really, I'm always a little bit suspicious of green drinks. You know, those, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, it's dark green. I was like, this is, I would drink a whole thing of it, not just a Totally. So you can find Magic Mind, which is the world's first productivity shot at magicmind.com. 
It's scientifically designed to boost energy, enhance focus, create a sense of calm alertness, and increase overall productivity. Magic Mind just might become the best part of your morning ritual. It sure has for me. Yeah, me too. And also, one thing I know about them, you do better if you subscribe. Because you oh, kinda, yes, you kind of want to keep going with it. So instead of just ordering once, it's cheaper to subscribe and keep it going. You won't regret it. Yeah, totally. Hello there. We are very okay. excited today. Hi, we have a guest coming to us from Sacramento, fellow West Coaster here, and we're introducing Monica Hall, who has a big story to tell. Welcome. Hi, Monica. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Great to be here. It's good to meet you guys almost in person. <laughs> I nice, know. At least I see a face. It's great. The new norm, right? The new norm. It is nice to meet you. You're funny. So. At least we do have video. Like, just imagine if it were 15 years ago, we wouldn't oh, have this yeah. option. So, yeah, it's nice to see each other. Yeah. Well, so dig in. You have a layered story. And we'll I find do. Out why. Mm-hmm. I have a layered story and it's, you know, I'm an adoptee. I was born in, well, don't I even want to say when I was born, probably not, but I was born a long time ago. And so I was, are you a 19- BSC? What's that? Baby scoop era. Yeah. It's actually, I was born in Canada. So mm-hmm. it was a little different in Canada. It was called the baby scoop, but they took indigenous children out of the mm-hmm. homes and out of the arms of indigenous women and put them in non-indigenous families. And that was my experience. And I didn't know that I was indigenous and I bleached my hair, but my older pictures and on my website, you can see that I, I looked a little bit like Cher back in the seventies. So I was born in 1957, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And I was relinquished for adoption by my mother. And I was in a foster home for four months, I believe. And what's really interesting is I did find my biological family before the advent of internet. It was like in 1980. And I have a search binder, which I was looking for. I can't find. But the search binder, I was just going through. And all this time, I thought I was in a foster home with six other babies. There were 10 babies there. It was, I don't know if I was there for display purposes, where I was before that. But my mom in the notes, you know, keep notes from decades ago. And I saw that the mother, the woman that was the nurse that had the babies, there was a baby boy that was sickly and he was not expected to live. So that's where Mm -hmm. I was. Yeah. And so due to the environment that he was in or maybe he was born with something that he wasn't going to live. And so she was caring for him till he passed, Mm -hmm. you know, with nine other babies, nine other babies, newborns. Yeah. Everyone's getting a lot of attention there. Yeah, right. So I don't know what happened or what kind of attention I did or didn't have, but my parents said that when they adopted me, I was really happy. I was happy baby. Well, you were adopted into a white family? Correct. So my parents were Californians that were living in Alaska. And so they took me to Alaska, which, you know, I was born in Canada. And I was told bedtime stories, how I was special, that my mother loved me so much that she wanted me to have a mommy and a daddy. And so I grew up with that narrative of thinking I was special because I was picked, of course, you know, extremely low self-worth and self-esteem. But so then we got my brother. So we got my brother when I was three. And that's when everything changed for me. And I have two little dogs. One's my daughter's that I was supposed to just have until her son stopped colicking. Now he, my daughter, my dog, my grandson's seven. So I still, I have two dogs. And the other (laughs) little dog is like a little narcissist dog. Like he's a little, he's a little bee and he's mean and picks on the other dog. Uh. He's smaller because he's jealous. And that dog annoys me. And it's because I spot it. Because that's the way I was with my little brother. I was just angry that my he took away my mommy. And he was really sensitive. Was he so, also indigenous? No. He looked like a gangly alien child when they got him. They said that he was a really good baby because he was sleeping through the night. And he was starving to death. And he had oh. super sensitive, had allergies, food allergies, screamed a lot, and took away my mommy. And were you in Alaska at this point or California? Okay. Yeah, that's where I grew up. I didn't move out of Alaska until I was 16. 
So those are my formative years. That's all I really know. And so my- And you were told you were adopted? I was told as a bedtime story that I was picked out, that I was special, that my other mother loved me so much. She wanted me to have a mommy and a daddy and that she was selfless. Mm. So my brother came along and my dad swooped in and he was my savior. He saw the little narcissist in me and, you know, a little, because I'm an extrovert. I was a tomboy. I wanted, I did everything, you know, to the beat all the boys at park strip races. I was, Mm -hmm. you know, extroverted and my brother was different and he was, my father was jealous of my brother. And so he became my savior. He's the one that, that I felt special with. Unfortunately, he was also a pedophile. So that Uh. wasn't. Holy smokes. What the hell, right? What the hell? Monica, sorry. Oh my God. He molested any other kids, but so anyway, but I love my dad. And you know, this is really, it's really conflicting and confusing for an adoptee because of course somewhere to belong, someone to love us. You know, we don't want to be left. We don't want to be abandoned. And so my dad was everything to me, yet I had so many repressed memories from my childhood. And part of my my memoir, my daughter wanted me to start writing a memoir because it was so interesting because I was an adoptee and also a birth mother in reunion on both ends. And she thought, well, that's super interesting to people. It's my life. There's no, the stuff that was interesting was the things that I repressed. Like I knew I had reoccurring dreams and missing time and repressed memories. And I knew all these things. And those were the things that I wanted to figure out. Mm -hmm. But this memoir is mainly about adoption. It's not about my dad in that way. That's my second book where I figured a lot of that out. But this is about adoption because you just can't have too many threads. And the adoption part, so when I was 13, there was something that clicked, like something changed. And I, for many, many decades, I didn't know what changed other than just I changed. So I became this juvenile delinquent. I beat people up. I broke into houses. I stole cars. I vandalized. I was a bully. And I was 103 pounds, five foot, one and three quarters, and just angry, just really angry. But when did the situation start with your father? Had it already been going on? I think because I've done a lot of work and some EMDR in 2020. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I went through EMDR with 11 big T traumas. This is what the therapist called it. Mm-hmm. You have 11 big T traumas, 11 big T traumas. <laughs> and it took- Not um, little T, by the way. Yeah, big T. And so I took the better part of a year to even just go through the treatment planning session for that. And I wanted to remember something about now I knew because in the 90s, I'd gone through the workbook, The Courage to Heal for Men and Women Survivors of Child Sexual Abuse, because I knew something had happened and something happened to my daughter. And it brought that up when I was in therapy. I started remembering things and, and realizing weird stuff was weird things I always thought were normal, weren't normal with mm-hmm. me, like getting under the covers with the drapes drawn for a nap during the day was filthy, disgusting, like something was horribly wrong. And I didn't even realize that until, you know, my daughter was five or six and, you know, she was going through therapy and I'm like, wow, that's not normal. I wonder why. So that's when I I went through the workbook. I had enough, enough there to know that I had been abused. So I went, I worked through that in 91, 92, 93, 94. And then, you know, of course, things can come up again. And so in 2020, when I was writing my memoir, I didn't want to write this about my dad because I loved him. So I didn't want to throw him under the bus unless I really remembered. So I got definitely enough memory from that EMDR. Are your parents still alive? My father passed away when I was 19. Mm -hmm. So in Alaska, this juvenile delinquent behavior, yet I was sneaking out my bedroom window. And I think the whole thing is I just wanted to be loved. Mm-hmm. I wasn't good in school. I had problems with maybe learning ADHD, ADD. My frontal lobe would shut down and I get fearful that I couldn't do the math. And my parents were very smart. And 
they would get frustrated with me and push away from the desk. Do you help her? You know, that kind of thing. So I stopped bringing work home. And then I cheated all through school. Had I have known that I was going to end up manufacturing and being a chemist. Manufacturing I know. Products, That's crazy. I Algebra could have helped me so much in those formulas. So <laughs> chemistry. And now I'm a writer. You think English would have been a really good thing to pay attention to. So, but anyway, I felt really stupid. I felt like I wasn't smart. And that was a huge thing for me. And I never went to college because I knew I had no discipline. So at 13, I had an incident with my dad where he took me out in a car when he thought some boys in the neighborhood wanted to ball me, which was the term in the last, well, back nice. in the, this is yeah. 70, like yeah. 1970. Lord. And so that term, I laugh when I hear kids saying it because I knew it was sexy and I didn't want to, you know, appear stupid. Not, not cool. Really, yeah. you know? And so I didn't really know what it meant. And we were Catholic. Like I even, I mean, super Catholic. We went to every Holy Day. I was named after the Virgin Mary. My name's Mary Monica. Very, very Catholic family. And my father used to say things to my brother and I when we were kids, like mama's a saint. I couldn't even get her in the sack until we were married. You know, oh my God, uh, my dad was really inappropriate. Uh, nice uh, research oh. on the part of the social workers for yeah. placement of oh, an adoptive oh, baby. Dad, Jesus. Never have passed a psycho value or a background check. Oh my they God. They just didn't do those things in those days. No. Like, no, they didn't. Know. So I had this complex of I would be good if I was a virgin. The message. Mm hmm. So I was the badass virgin Monica Hall in Anchorage. And I, I write on my blog and essays and I have people from Alaska that email me or write me or message me like, yeah, you chased me home from the movie theater. I was so scared of you or you beat up my boyfriend or what? I mean, yeah. just horrific things that I did. And many of them, I don't remember. I was just too busy trying to feel like somebody. I didn't feel good with the smart kids. I didn't do well in school. So I sought lower companions because I felt like, like I wouldn't be judged there and that I could be somebody, you know? So that happened in, when I was around 13 and some other things, there was a very vicious wire hanger beating. And my, oh. my mother made my dad stop when she saw pleasure in his eyes, she told me, but my mom didn't intervene, you know, and I love my mom so much, but I, you know, she was my mom, but she was there for my brother who now lives with me. Because he never moved out of her house. She died in 2019 and he was still living there and never really launched. You know? and now, wow. you're, now you're in charge of that. Yeah, but it's good now. I mean, I was super yeah. resentful when he first moved in. I basically, you know, he'd never gone to DMV on his own. He'd never paid a bill. He'd never gotten, he didn't know how to do anything. And I didn't do it. I'm like, you know, that's the way to build self-esteem is do esteemable things. Do things for yourself. Build self-esteem. Figure it out on your own. It's sad he was taken, that's taken away from him to grow. Boy, the parenting was just sounds horrendous. Horrible dysfunction in my family. And my mom made him her husband when my dad died in 1976. That's what I was going to say. She transferred that whole feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I'm a guy, man, 21 and with a guy. And then we eventually married. I wasn't in love with him. I just wanted to get the hell out of the house. And so we had a business together and at 1980, I started searching for my biological family. So I'm going to leave it there for a moment and I'm going to go back. So when I was this juvenile delinquent, I would sneak out my bedroom window, take LSD, drugs, cross tops, reds. I loved LSD. I mean, I'm clean and sober today, like 39 yeah. years. <laughs> So but you I loved it. I so many adoptees have substance yeah. abuse issues. Yeah. It's we're, we are hugely rep, overrepresented. I'm yeah. I myself am one. Yes, we are. But back then, I hadn't drank yet. But it was the LSD. I just loved. I think it removed the ego, and I think that's what I loved. It was going back to maybe god or in touch with something else you know it was i loved it never had a bad trip took a ton of lsd but i snuck out my bedroom window my best friend had her big brothers now this is alaska in the 70s so i'm going to set the stage here alaska was an oil boom town 
Mm-hmm. So you had pipeline executives moving in. You had new banks. We have my junior high was on a double shift. They were building another school. My high school was on a double shift. You had two bases, an army and an air force base, and you had all these pipeline workers. So mm-hmm. you had was this Anchorage, Anchorage, Alaska, sixty eight. They discovered oil. Seventies is when they were ramping up. Yeah, I didn't know this wasn't normal where new people were moving into town and and such. And sex workers, like so much prostitution. There was a a massage parlor, which is what they called them, popping up on almost every corner. It was really insane. I think a good TV show, Anchorage in the 70s. Yeah, totally. Interesting. And a screenplay. So yeah, probably because there are things that aren't in this manuscript that are in the next one. Things that happened to me there because I couldn't put it all in with the themes of adoption which is heavy enough and sexual abuse, which is heavy enough. But I snuck out my bedroom window because my best friend, her big brothers were part of a crew and they were 19 at the time. You know, I knew them when they were, you know, two years earlier, but I was 15 and one of the crew, I'd snuck out my window and he saw me, I think high on reds. I think that's why. And I had, we were coming back from a concert and you know how it's like kind of feeling like you're drunk on reds. And I was probably, mm-hmm. I was super cute, you know. Was, what are reds? I don't, I don't know what that is. Downers make you feel oh. dr- like, feel drunk. Ludes. Yeah. Like, oh, they were like quaaludes sort of. Okay. Quaaludes. But they weren't, they were reds. But anyway, they make you feel drunk and you just like, eh, you know, so and I'd only taken them that one time, but he talked me in to sneak out my bedroom window and going out with him on a date. And I mean, he looked a bit like Manson, you know, with the dark beard and the dark hair and the boys I liked were baby faced and, you know, they were in high school, you know, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to go out with him, but he knew I snuck out my window and, you know, the things that he did to get me to sneak out. So I brought my girlfriend along and he was angry when she was there and took her to her brothers. And I waited for him on the lawn and went on a motorcycle ride and got raped. Uh And so I was a virgin and 15 and I got raped and never told anybody. I felt like it was my fault. And if my parents knew they would have made a huge stink. And my mom was overprotective. That's why I was sneaking out. I'm a free spirit. I'm still a free spirit. I don't want to be contained. Right. So Mm -hmm. Anyway, I got pregnant and my parents being very Catholic, there was never a discussion of what was going to happen. There was no discussion. You just give your baby away when you're a Catholic and adoptions normalized in your family. That's what you do. There was never like my editor kept saying, show a scene where there was a a conversation about you relinquishing your baby. There was none. There was never a scene. It was just never had a choice. There was no, no. And it was like, break an arm, get a cast. And this was in the seventies. This is when pregnant girls weren't allowed in school, very Catholic family. They were, my parents were older. So when I was adopted, my mom was 32 and my dad was 42. So they were older too. They lived through the depression. They had those old ideals and the virgin thing. And so I got shut away for six months during a dark winter in Alaska. It's dark for like Mm. six months or longer. The, The longest day in the winter the shortest day is five hours of light. Yeah. So it's really dark and we cut hunker down, but I, nobody really came to visit. All my friends kind of abandoned me because I, I wasn't fun anymore. And they were kids. What, what are you going to do? And I was my sophomore year. So I had right in the early part of my sophomore year, more year as well. I had gone to a party. My parents didn't know where I was and I got abducted at knife point. Mm. I now know what was going to happen to me because I investigated it. And that's in my second book. But suffice it to say, I didn't realize until recently that I was pregnant. Then, And what would have happened to me is when they found out I was pregnant, they would have waited till I was showing, kicked me in the gut until I lost the baby and put me back out to work. Mm. So there is a series of like many miracles in my life over and over and over again. I wasn't meant for this. This is what I believe. I was born strong because most people with 11 big T traumas, especially those sensitive types peoples, they would have killed themselves long ago. And I have this ability just to push it down, repress it, repress it, repress it to move on. And so these last seven years of writing have been really hard because I've had and I worked with a developmental editor. I'd send her part of it. And then she'd say, so why did you feel shame? I'm like, I don't know. I just always felt shame. I never thought about why. And so I had to dig all that out, which has been 
I don't recommend it. Like I, I work with a lot of people in recovery as well. And we have great stories, like people in recovery, like our stories would horrify most people. Like that. we're laughing about it because we've lived it and we've moved past it. So that was really helpful to me to be able to dig and be honest. So super honest in the book and super honest on everything I say. Did you have a question? Yeah. You jumped from when your parents sent you away and you were pregnant. I kind of wanted that. Me in the, the rest of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back. They locked me in the house and my friends didn't show up. And Did they also like, were you not allowed to go out just also for embarrassment of the family? Right. I would get in the car through the garage and then she'd take me out of town to church or I went to see a nun for counseling. And so this lady was a sister, Mary Claire. She was lovely. I loved her, but a part of me knew that she meant to take my baby away. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I loved her and she loved me yet. She was going to take my baby and give it to people that were better than me. Yeah. And that's the message. Super conflicting, you know? So I did, you know, that's a whole story in of itself. And, you know, we don't have time here for that, but I did. I left my baby at the hospital and being an adoptee, she was the only human on the planet that was part of me yeah so to Mm -hmm. i groomed that nun i'm in sales and i groomed that nun to let me see my baby they did not let catholics see babies back there the other hospital where i went to a pregnant girls school during the week and those girls all were going to relinquish none of them did and they weren't oh they all those girls all kept their babies how did they Well, that's a different story. That's not your story. I mean, their moms let them Mm. or they ended up living with the baby daddy or got married or one got an abortion, but none of them relinquished and they were all going to. I was the only one. And Mm -hmm. so I told the nun, you know, that I needed to see my baby. And so they let me, I had to walk. I didn't realize at the time, but I was housed at the other end of the ward away from the other mothers who got to feed and hold their babies. Right. And I had torn internally and externally, just horrible. She was eight and a half pounds and I couldn't even sit, but I could scoot like tiny little scoots across the floor. And the next day I got to see her, the nun took me to her and I got to hold her and count her toes and smell her and look for similarities. She had little Cupid bow lips like I did. She had a long second toe like I did. And she had a weird little extra ridge in her ear. And I mean, I got to see her a few times, but it was like the nurse would come and take her from me. Like I was visiting, you know, an inmate or something, you know, my time was expired. And I remember being pissed. Like I haven't signed the papers yet. How dare you? But I had no voice, you know, I was this juvenile delinquent. But when it came to those things, I had no voice in my family. If you had a voice, you got slapped, you got hit, you got raged at. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's really weird dynamic. But I do. When I left the hospital, I looked back over my shoulder and I'm in the car with my mom and the grief was imploding. You know, it was like, I was going to die from the pain mm, of her. Yeah. It was the worst grief I've ever, pain I've ever felt in my life. And I remember looking back at the hospital and what, you know, is horrifying. Like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I just said, I just won't think about it right now. I just won't think about it right now. I just won't think about it right now. And that was my mantra. So I went home and I just, and she would bubble up and I remember her and I'd see that I'd repress it. I just won't think about it right now. I just won't think about it right now. And I never cried. I had some idea that if I cried, I'd die. You know, like I would never stop. And I had to be strong or I couldn't go through with it. And at the end, it was like, I never had a voice like, I want to keep my baby or can I keep my baby? And I remember thinking, if I don't, because at the last minute, this is so, so brutal. And for years, I couldn't see my mom's culpability in anything because I loved her so much. And I just wanted her to love me back, you know, and she had all the love for my brother. And I didn't realize it was jealousy there because my dad favored me. And I think she mm-hmm. knew what was happening. It stopped when I was probably six. There was an episode where I remember wetting the bed and I got a phobia of vomiting. And I know that's probably when it stopped. But she was so nice to me when I was pregnant. She was like my best friend. And now I realize 
when I got pregnant, you know, 13 years later, nine years later with my daughter, who's 38 now, before, you know, and you'd see attractive women in town or whatever around or whatever, they, you know, never really talked to you and kind of sneered back in, back when you were young, not now, but when I was young. But when I was pregnant, everybody was nice to me. Pretty women that would normally snub me, old men, young men, everybody was nice to me when I was pregnant. And I realized I was no longer competition. And my mom was so sweet to me when I was pregnant. But prior to that, it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, I just thought she didn't like me. And I didn't realize it was jealousy. We were fraught with jealousy. I was jealous of my brother. My dad picked on my brother who never said a kind word to him, picked on him 24 seven. He was jealous Mm. of my brother. Mother was jealous of me. It was such a sick place to grow up. Sure is. So you get out, do you finally get out? So you give your daughter up, you get to visit her a couple of times. Right at the end, when I'm supposed to sign the papers, the nun came in, a different nun, because this nun had been sent to the lower 48, the one that was going to bring my baby. And the nun came in, she said, I go, where's mama? Why isn't mama here? And she said, she couldn't come. She needed me to tell you something. She said that she wouldn't be able to get the words out and she'd get too emotional, but she wants you to know she couldn't live with herself if she was to separate a mother from her child. And if you want to bring your baby home, you can. Then she picked up the papers that I was supposed to read that I couldn't read for the signing an hour later and took them and left. No conversation about how that might look, that I'd go to school, my mom would take my baby, we'd go out and get diapers, just nothing. And so I sat there with all of a sudden, I've been groomed to give my baby away. And now I have this decision that I could bring her home. Yeah. And I, I said, your mom's not there to tell you this, to talk to you about it. She's your kid. She threw me the bus so she wouldn't feel guilt. So you signed the papers. I signed the papers. And I signed the papers because, oh my gosh, Sister Claire would not love me anymore. The parents that she told me are how wonderful parents they would be devastated because even the adoptive mother had given Sister Claire a message to give to my mother that I told my mom I was supposed to go over a bumpy road so I'd hurry up and go into labor. And I went a month overdue. And I think my baby just didn't want to leave. And I didn't want her to leave. And so, I mean, I out of insecurity and out of, you know, my mother was, my birth mother was good. She did the right thing. She was selfless. And here I had no worth. I was worthless. I was relinquished. I was given away and I always felt worthless. And I would be worthy if I did what my mother did and gave my baby away. I would get the worth back. You know, I don't know. It's so hard to unwind, but I it's so paper. complicated and layered in there for you. So complicated. I'm sorry what you've been through. And thank you. And I, you know, it's still emotional. So I did. I left my daughter and just repressed and repressed. And all through my six months at home in the dark, when I was kept in the house, I kept a journal and I wrote mostly very immature. Gosh, I was just a child, you know, but I did keep that journal and document it. And all these years, I have kept every appointment book, every journal. I have a diary as early as 1968 when I was just like 11 and all my appointment books from all these years. And I'm like, why am I carting this crap around? And I think I intuitively knew I was going to need to scribe this and figure it out eventually. So we moved shortly thereafter to the lower 48. We moved to Fair Oaks, which is where I live now. And I started, yeah, Sacramento area in the suburb. And I started high school. And after that, out of high school, I still hadn't had a drink and I changed all my ways when I was pregnant. That was the thing that was the change. You know, it was that switch. I stopped drinking. I I mean, I stopped. I wasn't drinking at the time. I stopped the drugs. I stopped sneaking out. I became good. I said the rosary, a 54 day novena for my daughter. So she'd get good parents. Although I never prayed that she get parents like mine. I thought I got good parents, but I think something I must have known that they weren't good parents, you know? And so I I ended up eventually drinking and using and going down a spiral. And it started after my father passed in 77. And I just started going to the bar and sleeping with guys and looking for my dad. You know, I was looking for my dad in all the wrong places. And then I met Randy and I married Randy. We were married one month. He told me if I married him, 
he'd take me to Canada to meet my family because I found my family in 1980 when I was 22, 23. And that was back in the old days where I wrote letters. I have a binder that's like this big. And back then it was Alma, Adoptee Liberty Movement Association. And I wrote mm-hmm. letters to Pierre Trudeau to try to get my birth certificate. I wrote letters to hospitals. I have so many copies of letters. I had it set up to facts. I had my non-identifying information. I knew that my mother was Irish. My father was French. He worked on the railroad. My mother had six brothers and no sisters. She liked to sew her own clothes. She had brown hair and blue eyes. She was five foot five. I'm five, one and three quarters. I had this information. And it's funny because when I was pregnant with Mary Claire, the baby that I relinquished, the adoption agency came, the state adoption agency came to the pregnant school and talked to us. And I went up to the lady afterwards and I said, you know, I'm adopted and my parents don't know anything about my family because they've never told me they did. And I went home and I told my mom and she started to cry. I didn't know why she was crying. I asked her a few years ago before she passed away and she told me, she said, I came to her and I told her about the agency and she said, I was so sad because I got to love you all those years. And because I loved you, your birth mother, you know, pain, I got the love and she got the pain. She had compassion for my, my birth mother. And she said, there's some records and your papers with your real name on it in the safety deposit box. So I got to read those when I was pregnant with my daughter and I could feel, I thought my mother there with me. And I even wrote in my journal, she has to show me how to do this. She's got to show me the way because I didn't know how I was going to be able to do this, but she had done it right. So I now I have all those papers and I use those to search. And when I found my biological family, I found my uncle, but my birth mother was deceased and I never got to meet her. Yeah. She had died of a broken heart. She Mm. had tried to get me back. She didn't have a father for me. She grew up in a home with six boys and she was a workhorse. This is what people told me. And she didn't want me to have her life. I would have had to live with my granny and my six wild uncles. And she was trying to save me from her life. And then she met a man right away and tried to get me back. They went to the adoption, you know, and I was still in foster care, but they wouldn't give me to her. And so she had another child. She had three other kids. And when I met her husband, eventually he told me that she cried every night pining for me until she died. Mm. Oh, brutal stuff. I mean, the things that I learned about her life. And it's so weird because any little tidbit, like, I don't care what it is. Tell me about my mom. I don't care if it's bad. I don't care any, you know, it's like the only way I could know her. And I know she loved me. I know she loved me. So that was rough. And it was rough writing the manuscript too, because of that. But my daughter, when I relinquished her, All I held on to was 18 years, 18 years, I can find her 18 years, I can find her 18 years. And I counted the years. And then when it got to be close to her being 18, I started telling my friends, oh, I'm going to go look for her. I'm going to find her. And they said, but what if she doesn't want to find you? Maybe you should wait and see if she wants to find you first. And I was enraged by that. No, I know she'll be just like me. She'll want to find me. I know she's just like me. I know she's just like me. And so six months before She was 18. I couldn't wait. And I called the adoption agency in Anchorage. And they said, you know, it's six months too early. Adoptions, they were open up in Alaska by then, believe it or not. This was in 91. And it was one of the states where they had open adoption records. And they said, but write us a letter. We'll forward it to our parents. And then if they want to do a reunification, then we'll facilitate it. But wait till she's 18. So that was six months And I couldn't write a letter. I couldn't even write a letter to give her with the nun. I was supposed to be able to do that. But I felt so much shame. And what do you say? I'm sorry, I couldn't keep you. You needed a mommy and a daddy. I didn't want the bunk platitudes I grew up with. And I felt stupid that they would know I couldn't write. And anyway, my insecurity, I never gave her that letter, even though having a letter from my birth mother would have meant more to me than anything on the entire planet, you know, like anything. And so... I didn't write the letter, but about a week or two later, I get a call at my desk at work and it's the adoption agency, Catholic Charities in Alaska. And they said, we're sorry we haven't gotten back to you. I'm like, what do you mean? 
I didn't expect them to get back to me, you know? And they said, but we have a picture here. And I meant a picture, a picture of who? Of your daughter. And at that moment, all those tears that I had repressed for 18 years came at one time. And I couldn't even hang up the phone. I couldn't find the receiver. There were so many tears. And my coworkers rushed to my cubicle, like, are you okay? Who died? What happened? I couldn't even speak. And the few days later, they sent me a picture of her in the mail. Wow. And I, I mean, I kept calling my neighbor, has a mail come? Has a mail come? Has a mail come? And I raced home on my lunch, a late lunch. And I opened that mailbox and I sat on my front porch and I looked at her face for the first time. Like, and it was so weird. She, it was mm. surreal. She looked like It looked like I was looking at somebody I knew. It looked like I was looking at myself. It was so weird. And she walks like me. She talks like me. She looks like me. We're both raised very strict Catholic. We're both really not, we're really not traditional in any way, shape or form. She's just like me. And I, I have long, straight, dark hair in real life. (laughs) I have dark roots there. I don't even have, I don't don't even have gray yet. But anyway, so we both had our hair permed because in the eighties, right. And we had long permed hair and we kept our forehead headbands. And I had these really tall forehead. My kids all have this tall forehead, all my offspring. And we got it from my grandfather, who was the alcoholic. My birth mother's father was a drunk. Mm. I got the gene. And I'm a lot like the Reed side of the family, not like the Aboriginal. So my biological mother was blonde and blue, light-haired and blue-eyed. But she was the only kid in the family like that. The rest where she was in a sea of dark heads. She just turned out light like her father, who was Irish or English and Irish. And her mother was what we call Métis. And Métis is a French term for half-breed. And it was coined by the French, obviously, who made it with the Scots that made it with Aboriginal women. So my grandmother was, she looked indigenous and so did my uncles. My mother looked fair. She looked light. My biological father, his name was Chaps. Her name was Ida. And Chaps was an extraordinary handsome man. He looked like Elvis Presley back in the day. And he was dark, very dark skin, as are my siblings on his side of the family. He got my mother pregnant and then he got his girlfriend pregnant. I was conceived on Halloween. How many people know the day they're conceived? My mother visited him Halloween, he told me. And (laughs) my birthday is July 27th, which figures out. But she ended up pregnant with my brother, my half-brother. And so we were in utero at the same time for like three months, just in a different womb. And my dad, when I was born, my granny called my father to come to the hospital to see me. She said, he said to pay the hospital bill. And so he never went because all they wanted was for him to pay the hospital bill. And so I had a lot of, you know, sadness around that. And I asked him many times, wasn't I, you know, I never said, wasn't I important enough to pay the hospital bill for, but I didn't get the right answer. I didn't get an answer. It was always, you know, circumvented or whatever. And he passed a few years ago and he was a really nice man and his wife just passed. And she was very welcoming to me and always kept the channels open, but wasn't a warm woman to me. So Um, you met your siblings? Yeah, I met my siblings and I did geographics, which is what we call it. (laughs) We're an alcoholic. I went to Canada for a while and caused some wreckage up there and and came back down here and eventually got sober. But I partied a lot with my siblings on my dad's side, and particularly my brother, Kane, who we were really close. And he came down here and lived with me for a while. And I went up there and lived and I stayed with my sister. And, you know, it was really interesting because I grew up where you set the table, you know, I did all the chores. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I was, you know, super had to, my brother didn't have any chores. So I set the table, I washed the dishes, I dusted, I did all those things. And my brother did pretty much nothing. And we had, you know, like things matched. But when I went to Canada, they grew up poor, you know, the Métis, the Aboriginal people. And they were really, it was really prejudiced because they weren't white and they weren't native because they were Métis. So they had relinquished their rights for a little bit of land and a little bit of paper back at my ancestors did. So 
Métis is now actually a term for another, almost another race mm-hmm. up there. And so I've heard it. I've heard it. I never knew what it was. Yeah. So I'm Métis as well. And I did my DNA and I, I'm almost a third Aboriginal, but I ended up light like my mom, but my siblings were great. And I felt like when I was at their house and they didn't have, they peeled an, a potato with one swoop. I needed a peeler. I went out to buy a peeler just so I could stand at the sink with my siblings and feel like I was part of the stew. You know what I mean? I loved that nobody came to my house. You know, nobody wanted to be around my parents. They were not welcoming. It was dark. It was foreboding. They were older. They didn't like people in the house. And I always wanted to have a big family. And I think it was in my blood. Because so did the, you have a big family? You, I heard you say kids. So I, I didn't. Right. I didn't yeah. realize how. I, I, th- like, I thought there was one. There's more. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. Did you have kids with Randy? So that I did with my family, my biological family. My dad had four kids and it they didn't have anything that matched. Their silverware didn't match. They put plates on top of their, for Tupperware on top of their food. And I loved that. You felt I home. Loved, you felt at home. Thing was mm-hmm. worn and everything. Yes. And it was both sides of my family. And, you know, the Cree people followed the buffalo and they were all part yeah. of my family, super connected and they all get together all the time. And so when I had my kids, so I relinquished Mary and then I got sober and I met the first sober guy and I got immediately pregnant and then he got immediately drunk. And then I'm a <laughs> And I caught him in bed with a blonde and a bottle of Bacardi when I was five months pregnant. I climbed in his window and caught him with her. And it was actually a funny story. But anyway, suffice to say, I was a single mom and I stayed sober and I kept my daughter and she's 38 today. And she's the one that wanted me to write my memoir. Yeah. In Michigan. No, she lives here. Oh, oh, oh. My daughter that I relinquished for adoption, she had moved. Her father was with a secret service and they had been stationed in Alaska. And then they moved to Washington state. And then when she was 13, they moved back to the home of the parents, which is in Michigan. And so that's where she lives with my two granddaughters. So she turned 50 in June and I Mm -hmm. went back for her birthday and my granddaughter's graduation. That's where you were. Yeah. She's going to Michigan state. She's super smart. She went to school and everything. Mary's just like me. We're like smart, but entrepreneur. And that was, you named her what you were named. I named her Mary Monica after me, thinking she'd be able to find me if I named her the same thing as me. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. But she didn't, all she had to do is call Alaska and they put us together. So that was really nice. Alaska, I guess, doesn't have as... They're open. They were wow. open. Yeah, they're one that's of the states that's open. Yeah. And Michigan Thank you, Alaska. Is, yes. Michigan's Michigan, one of the worst. It's one of the worst. And yeah. they knew that. And that's why her mother uh-huh. had a friend that couldn't find. And that's why they started early because she knew Mary wanted to find. And her mom was amazing. Amazing. They said they wanted to thank me in person and they were amazing people and they still alive, but it was just perfect scenario. She got the greatest family, the greatest people. But then I divorced Rebecca's dad, the one that's 38 and he, cause he was not sober. So I raised Becca on my own and then I got married again. And I remember this husband and I, my picker was broken. Probably yeah. still is. <laughs> my, I'm single my, now. my friend Ron and I say, used to say, Ron used yeah, to call it that. that. My picker isn't working. <laughs> I have the same problem. <laughs> no, I pick Bad people. picker. <laughs> yeah. I pick people that will betray me. And anyway. of course, I'm, you know, now I live with my brother. <laughs> great, great brother. He's like, so cool. He's clean and sober now, six years and Good for he's him. working and he's like my best friend and he he's taken me. on his own things too. I love yes. that. Yeah. So anyway, I might have my son, then I had a son. So I have three kids. They're all different fathers and no shame and in that. It's amazing. Not, a, not to me. I nope. mean, through a lot of shame being knocked up at 15, that was a lot of shame back then yep. and give my baby away, but it's come full circle. And so Mary when she came to visit me for the first time, they sent her two days before her 18th birthday. I have video of us at the airport. It's oh. not on my website. I'm waiting till I launch my book. My book is being launched. The name of it I have, it's Practically Still a Virgin, is the name of the book. We'll put all this in the show notes. 
all people, the so. there, yeah but i was, was gonna say it should be i i just like that you need to somehow write a story with five months pregnant and bourbon coming through the window something oh, with that book that, that, <laughs> yeah i think that that's in this book you've had uh, some actually. good stuff yeah it's some good stuff there's some good stuff in there. <laughs> anyway so i met mary at the airport that is not on my website yet i'm waiting but I have a, I have the interview with my father. So when my father came in 1980 to my house, Alma, the camera crew. So one of those news stations wanted to do a four part series on adult adoption. And they knew that I was going to be reunifying with my father. So the camera crew came to the airport and it filmed us meeting in 1980. And then at my home, they came with, you know, the mic me up and I have that. It's very rough, but I have that. And then I have, you know, these all documented. So Mary and she came, we dressed exactly the same. We wore the same clothes. And I had this big party for her of everybody I knew that I, I told everybody all my life about oh, Mary, yeah. you know, always talked about her. And I knew she was going to be, and people were just unbelievable. They like, oh my God, they didn't know which of us was which. We looked on my website. You can see one of the pictures. We looked so much alike. We talked alike. We walked alike. We have the same everything. And I wonder if it's because I created her, you know, thoughts are huge things. And yeah. I've always said, she's just like me. She's just like me. I know she's just like me and she's just like me. So, and so, do all your kids know each other and have a relationship? And yeah. So Mary and Becca, my daughter, Becca is 38, my golden child, they say, there's some sibling rivalry there with Mary. <laughs> He's the oldest, yet I got to keep Becca. Yeah, and it's, so painful. They, it's painful. And they're a lot alike, but they love each other. And they, you know, we've gone back there to get, you know, we've been together a number of times. And Mary, when her daughter was born 18 years ago, I went back to be a mom with a newborn and like a real mom. Like I was so excited, you know, yeah. and Mary treated me like shit the whole time. Yeah taking the coffee, but never mind, I'll make the coffee. Just horrible. And I was in the basement where my bedroom was. It was a beautiful room, but I felt like I was shut to the dungeon. And I call my significant other at the time and just cry and cry and cry. And she says it's hormones. I know it's not hormones. And so I just went back there for her 50th birthday, which she didn't celebrate. She's never liked her birthday. She used to, when she That's was a little, common adoptee. Yeah. Mm -hmm. she, not liking a birthday exactly she would sit by the window waiting for me to come for her and cry mm -hmm. so and it's changed when she had the, her own child and now she has a 13 year old and an 18 year old and they're beautiful girls and her husband she's divorced now but her husband was an adoptee not interesting and her current boyfriend is an adoptee you're really, that's really layered. In we there. have so much and we could just talk forever. And I mm -hmm. want to find a way for you yeah. to, I know we can. So basically, that's it. I mean, I'm at the end. I I could go on for hours, but basically I just got back from Michigan. We didn't celebrate her birthday. I was there for the grad party and, you know, I love her and she loves me and we FaceTime all the time. And I talk her off a ledge all the time. There's an essay on my website about how she finally named her pain and and that she misses me. While you were speaking, I was thinking how many birth mothers and children that are relinquished that don't have the feelings for this can be like, oh, I can't have a relationship or my you thought about her every day, that kind of thing. Because, you know, yeah. often we haven't really heard from birth mothers, you know? Well, yeah, because we're an adoptee centric mm -hmm. So it's like we have podcasts. The, so, of course. Yeah. So we have the, the layered part here as an adoptee and a birth mother. We've had a, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, I think for me being an adoptee and having the adoptee pain i had to forgive my mom my adoptive mom You're, i had to mm -hmm. forgive my father i didn't ever feel like i had to forgive my birth mother for some reason maybe because i related to her but I, how i did that is i had to go back and look at what made them the way they were what That's happened true. in their life and a lot of what i've done in the last 7 years is is investigate my family's my parents past and the same with being an adoptee. I believe that healing can come from compassion. Why do birth mothers do what they do? And so many are shut down and secondary rejection is just horrific, horrific. Mm -hmm. But these women are broken yeah, in so many ways. And reading books like 
the girls who went away, you know, it's like that listening to the other side of it can give us some compassion for why people do what they did Mm -hmm. and why there's secondary rejection. So I'm hoping that's my message. It's very healing and you're brave and you're putting a lot of very deep and personal things out there. And it's, I appreciate it. I think all the listeners will too, because there's so many people who just listen and don't have someone to talk to and haven't had counseling and, you know. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. It's, you're very vulnerable and, Mm -hmm. and honest and brave to put all this out there. So we really appreciate that. Loved having you on. My pleasure. Absolutely. I love you. You're a light. Mm -hmm. You're a light. And Patreon supporters, man, you guys support. Yes. Thank you for being one. A dollar thing where there's more options because $5 isn't enough. You guys do some really wonderful work. Thank you, mom. There is, there actually is an option to change that. Yeah. It was hard. Oh, it was, was it hard? Huh. They, Good to know. We'll yeah. we'll have to look at Patreon and, and find and out. Will you tell it, us really quick the name of your book? Yes, it's practically still a virgin. Isn't oh, right. I like that title. Virgin. I do too. And I, I haven't told. I haven't launched that. Nobody knows, but you and now everybody listening. So great. And, and if you have it, links, we'll definitely put those on onto you. your website. We'll link to your website for sure. Okay. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. So great meeting you, Monica. Thank, Thank you. you. We'll see you in person. Yes, yes, I, I hope would like so. that. <laughs> Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye. What a story, huh? I mean, she has had, talk about big T's, big traumas. Gosh. She has really been through some stuff and she is strong, like she said. Very, very. I find her to yeah. just be this strong force, mm-hmm. you know? I'm excited for her book to come out. I am too. The stuff she's tackling is big. And mm-hmm. a lot of people go through this. A lot of adoptees are vulnerable to molestation. Uh, and yes. Alcohol and drugs and rape and all of it. I and mean, we're overrepresented just, in all yeah. of those areas. Yeah. yeah. I'm so just happy with the reunion with her daughter and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God. I know. Hard. Well. What, what do we say? say? <laughs> it's hard Another to say great, it with this. Another it, great episode. I mean, episode. it really is hard to say, but great has many definitions. It was a great episode. It does. It does. See you okay. next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time. Bye.